Welcome to 050. I'm your host, Bruce Bradley, founder of recycling company First Mile. This is our Green Impact podcast, where we meet guests creating solutions for a zero carbon world. We are all increasingly talking about achieving net zero, but who is going to deliver it? Who is going to do all the planning, project design, supply chain, redesign, product changes and transformation? Who are the people working with governments and corporations to design and implement sustainable systems? There is a massive amount of work to undertake, and today I am delighted to welcome our guest who is doing much of this very important work. Debbie Hitchin leads the Sustainable Production and Consumption Team at Anthesis, a company describing itself as a sustainability activator. We'll have more on this soon. Debbie and her team help organizations to focus their sustainability ambitions on deliverable impact, not just talk. I'm super excited to welcome Debbie to Zero Five O, a mega star of the sustainability world. Welcome to the podcast, Debbie. Thank you, Bruce. What an introduction. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Brilliant. So we're going to get straight in there. And can you tell me what you're doing at Anthesis in the Sustainable Production and Consumption team and how it's helping us get to net zero? Yeah, absolutely. So we don't have long, so I'll try and make this a little bit more succinct. But basically... Massive question. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It is a massive question. And it's quite a big team with quite a big remit, as you've already identified. So within sustainable production and consumption, we look at all the materials, we look at the chemical systems, and we look at the food and agricultural systems across the whole value chain. So we start with raw material choices and extractive industries, and we kind of work our way through that value chain then into manufacturing, design choices, retail, logistics, and distribution. We look at the consumption phases, obviously, and then beyond that. And so what happens to those materials, products post their use and uh, into their sort of secondary commodities life cycle. So there's a lot going on within this team. It's super exciting. I think we're about 60 or 70 folk in the team at the moment. So we've got really sort of deep dive experts and specialists working on each part of that value chain with a range of different clients and helping them across a whole different raft of challenges and opportunities. The businesses, the third sector and government are all facing around this at the moment. I was reading an article the other day and someone said, actually, you know, it's great all these announcements about CEOs go out there and they say, oh, we're going to be net zero in X, Y, Z years. But the person in the article is saying, actually, getting to net zero is a series of quite boring and tedious projects and decisions to get to the point where we're actually making a difference. Is it like that or is it is it just like being a rock star and really exciting? It's somewhere in between, I think it's fair to say. In my career, I have always sort of strived to be in the place that's kind of doing things at the cutting edge. In fact, you know this, Bruce, because I first met you at a compliance scheme right in the early days of producer responsibility back at the end of the 90s. And that was really my first sort of foray, if you like, into working right at the forefront of change in the sustainability sector. And for me, that's been a a real focus for my career ever since. I've intentionally worked in places where we're pushing boundaries. So I wouldn't agree, as an Anthesian, I wouldn't agree that we are looking at incremental steps that are actually quite dull. 
I think we're driving innovation. I think there's a lot of really exciting stuff that's being done across the board. Actually, even some of the policy and regulation changes, which might seem less appealing to some of your listeners, are actually driving some real innovation and and on the ground changes. And I feel good about that. But I can see how if sustainability is maybe one of many hats that you wear in your day-to-day life, you know, you're really a CFO and you're challenged by trying to understand what the latest virgin plastic tax is going to do to your bottom line. I can understand why that might feel a little bit like all of this stuff is coming at you. It's coming at you quite fast because there's so much change in sustainability and in the landscape at the moment. I can see why people might say, actually, they see that as a, as a negative. But I'm encouraged, actually, by the fact that over the last couple of years, since the pandemic even, we've seen a huge increase in businesses taking sustainability much more seriously. Net zero was a term that was really not used a couple of years ago. So not only have we coined a new phrase, but we've delivered real sort of legacy of change, I think, towards that over the last couple of years. So being an optimist, I'm going to say it's full of exciting opportunity. That's brilliant. Well, you talk about something called a decisive decade. Debbie's decisive decade. What is this? Oh, I wish it was my decisive decade. It's actually a phrase um, from the United Nations. And the decisive decade is basically the 10 years to 2030, during which we as a society still have the opportunity to have a significant impact on climate change. And it's all connected, obviously, to the Paris Agreement and the global sort of drivers around the sustainable development goals and the commitments that we've made as societies at a global level to achieve change that will actually be significant over that period of time. So it's the heart of the anthesis model, which is possibly why you think it's the Debbie's decisive decade, it's a big part of our activation strategy. So as you said in your introduction, Anthesis is really about seeing that change happen. So we don't like to write strategies or reports that prop doors open or gather dust on a shelf. We're much more about working in tandem with our clients, bringing together networks of different stakeholders from within our client group and, and wider than that to see the change happen. And it's because at the heart of our vision is this requirement to basically look the next generation in the eye and say, we did everything we could in that 10 years, in that decisive decade to deliver a significant change that will make the world more sustainable. And how are we doing? We're sort of uh, 10% into the decisive decade. Are we on track? That's a big question. I would recommend your listeners keep an eye on what's coming out of COP next month, because I think there will be some significant issues and, and topics discussed there that will tell us that. So I think we still have a long way to go. And in fact, it's one of the things that concerns me. I see quite a lot of short-term visioning. And I understand that actually in some businesses, you know, 2030 seems quite a long way away. You know, if you're a young child now, 2030 probably seems quite a long way ahead of you in terms of your own personal development cycle. But it's not that long. And what I worry about, firstly, is that I see organizations sort of saying, well, you know, we'll put the difficult stuff off. We'll do the low-hanging fruit. We'll tackle what we can now. And actually, often that's not enough. But I also then see people who are kind of implying that maybe by 2030, we'll have solved the problem. You know, the the end of the decisive decade, it'll all be okay. You know, we can go back to the sort of consumption and production cycles that we've been used to. And I worry a little bit that there's going to be a waking up during that period of people that actually this isn't going to be something that we can solve in the decisive decade. This is about resetting our pathway. This is about building a new way of sustaining production and consumption levels within the one planet boundaries. You're optimistic. It sounds like we're doing well. I want to get on to more around the sustainability activator role at Anthesis because I know Anthesis is reasonably well. You've got a massive 
depth of skills in terms of delivering or activating sustainability strategies. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about what your model is for activating sustainability and maybe bring it to life with a example of some work that you've done without busting all client confidentiality um, and tell us something exciting you've worked with the client, if you can, I'll put you on the spot there, Debbie. Yeah, no, that's absolutely fine. So the point of the activator journey, as I say, is to really deliver significant change. And so we've been structured as an organization to allow us to have the maximum impact, by which I mean sustainability impact, over the next 10 years or so. So at the heart of our business model is the fact that we're a B Corp. So we kind of wear our heart on our sleeves, I guess. And uh, your listeners will probably know what B Corp is, or you can go and look it up and you can see how that puts sustainability right at the center of everything that we do. But it also means that we take that and we kind of implement that uh, B Corp philosophy with as many of our clients and stakeholders that we work with as possible. Now, lots of people will assume that we are consultants. So people who've worked with us before will probably assume that they know Anthesis as a consultant and therefore they would recognize us amongst some of the other peers that are our management consultant competitors and, and maybe some of the smaller boutique specialist environmental and sustainability businesses too. But we're a lot more than consultants. So a big portion of my colleagues are actually in the digital space. So we have software developers, code writers, and so on around our global business. And that is because we believe that there is a huge opportunity for digital to deliver and to sustain what we're trying to create as as the next sort of future for more sustainable business. So that is a fundamental part of what we leave many of our clients with and how we engage with our clients. We might go in and do a carbon assessment, for example. We might leave them with a green design tool that allows them to do that same assessment time and time and time again on their new products as they develop their portfolio over time. And then the activator strategy wouldn't be complete if we didn't help people to really implement things. So as well as having that sort of technical support available either through the consultants or the digital stream or indeed through a secondment route where you can have somebody parachuted into the business to work with you. We also have a ventures arm. So Anthesis is putting its money where its mouth is, so to speak, in the next part of the supply chain that can deliver some of the change that we can't. And so in that case, it might be looking at alternative energy or all sorts of different opportunities where we can kind of implement something within a business that leaves that legacy of change. Brilliant. And I think the digital bit's really important as well, because there's things like the Cool Farm tool that you developed, which is really about getting data back up through the really big global supply chains to help organizations uh, understand you know, what is happening in the supply chain. Data is a, is a huge thing. So I personally both love it and hate it. Anyone who knows me will know I cannot work a spreadsheet, but I love the visuals that come out of it. One of the things we've done a lot with recently is to import really complicated data sets into things like Tableau and Power BI, which are a visualization tool, which are a dream for people like me, because then you can kind of see whether it's on a global map or whether it's on an interactive pie chart or, or whatever it might be. You get this visual that you can play with that allows you to really understand where your biggest hotspots or, or risks and opportunities are. And a lot of the projects that we do both in Anthesis, but specifically within the sustainable production and consumption team that I run, are all focused on what does the data tell us? Where are we today? What's the gap to what good looks like? So loads of the businesses we're working with are either already working towards 2025 or 2030 sustainability goals, or are trying to work out what that goal should look like. How ambitious can they be? And the data tells us the start point. And by using it in these visualization tools, it gives us the ability to share that up to the C-suite or down to operational site managers at factories or logistics providers and even partners. And it's super valuable because from that, you can then see where 
will you have the biggest impact? What's it going to cost you to start to implement that change? And how ambitious do you have to be to really make the sort of level of change that your stakeholders, whether they're customers or shareholders in the business, are asking for? Yeah, I mean, data is key and, you know, particularly around waste and recycling, where it's typically not managed or in longer supply chains where it's not managed. So, Debbie, sustainable production and consumption, a big part of what we produce and ultimately consume comes in packaging. And I know that you've got a long history of working with packaging. Everybody's confused about packaging. We've got people who are trying to get to zero plastics. We've got compostable packaging. We've got the introduction of a return scheme, a deposit return scheme, which is sort of harping back to the 60s and 70s. What do you view the main challenges are for packaging over the decisive decade? And are we still going to be arguing about whether we can recycle a composite Tetra Pak or a plastic tray in 10 years' time, or is it close to being solved? All of our customers and the listeners of this podcast are always asking about packaging because they're confused about it. So can you throw some light on it for us? Well, I'll try. Uh, You do love a, a long question, Bruce. There's a lot to unpack in there, but I'll have a go at some of those key things. Well, I do. I have a a strong passion for packaging. I have, uh, not going to tell you how old I am, but I have many years of experience working in packaging. For me, I've been really excited, actually, since the Blue Planet sort of phenomenon. People went from saying they didn't really understand what I did. I was kind of a glorified bin collector to being the person where people said, oh, Debbie's here. I'm still just a bin collector. You, you've moved on, Debbie. I know. Move up the value chain, Bruce. That's all I can say. But people get it now. They really understand, you know, as a result of that big exposure, I think, what, what packaging does. I'm slightly concerned that it gave packaging a bad rap. So one of the things that I'm always conscious of when I talk to anybody about packaging is, you know, it's it has to be fit for purpose. It has to deliver its its function. But we often forget that the embedded carbon footprints and the, you know, the significant environmental impacts are often in the product and not in the packaging. The cucumber is a great example that everybody knows about. And so for me, it's about not belittling packaging, but ensuring that we have the right packaging that performs in the right way that protects that product and reduces any wastage of that product, whether it's food or or a durable product. But also that, as you say, it has the lowest level of impact as packaging itself right the way from its sort of start point. So 80% of the environmental impacts of any product, including packaging, are typically incorporated at the design stage. So we do a lot of work with organizations who are looking at re-evaluating their packaging. And we find that there's a huge amount of confusion and there's also a lot of discrepancy globally. So a lot of the companies that we as consumers buy product or obtain packaging from are packaging product on a global basis. So the first major hurdle that people come across is this issue of what's recyclable in one marketplace is not recyclable where the maturity of the infrastructure is lower in a different marketplace. And yet the product is manufactured in the same place, distributed to those locations. And so finding a one size fits all solution for that sort of end of life recyclability is is really, really difficult. What we typically advise people to do is to do a landscape review. So to look at the level of that maturity, so that's collection infrastructure as well as reprocessing infrastructure, and to try and understand what will happen to their product or their packaging when it is discarded at end of life, and to look then on that maturity matrix at what they can and can't do. Often it is a case of being incremental. So you can't always go for the sort of big bang solution that you might want immediately. You might have to take stepping stones. There's always a win-win where you can start with reduction. Obviously, it's the top of the waste hierarchy, but it also has the carbon and other environmental impacts and benefits associated with it. So where there is an options assessment to be done, the first thing to do is to look at, can we take a layer of packaging out? 
Can we reduce the headspace in something, the seam space in something? And we've got a team of packaging engineers and pack techs that actually have worked in industry who've got some super exciting opportunities that they've been looking at with clients around this. And then it's, it is about getting into those more complicated and sticky areas about compostability, for example. So our main sort of point of reference around that for the clients that we work with is, is there a collection mechanism for that compostable? So there might be if it's in the commercial stream. So if your listeners are managing um, restaurants or food to go or, or that sort of thing, then there may be a way in which that can be collected through the commercial waste stream and, and recycled at an industrial composting facility. But often most household schemes exclude packaging. So you can't put it or you're not encouraged to put it in with your food waste from your kitchen. And that's because it's very difficult for that packaging to be identified as compostable. And in many cases, it may not break down. And if it does, it may break down to produce very little benefit to the system in those processes. So our recommendation to people is to really understand the systems downstream from them before they make decisions around compostable, because it's not the golden bullet that people think it is. No, I think there's, and, there's a, a, and, and at the moment, we seem to be going through this sort of cycle with packaging of innovation, and we see new packaging on the market every month. And some of it might have a fantastic low, fantastically lower impact upstream, but then impossible to recycle, which is fine if you're trying to get the upstream benefit, but don't sell it as being a recyclable product. And what's your prediction on plastics? Do you think we're going to move more to plastics? I mean, it's a fantastic material. It's lightweight. It's super protective. The industry predictions around sort of petrochemicals say we're going to have more and more plastics globally because, you know, China and India and the BRIC countries haven't got going yet on their plastics uh, packaging production. Do you think we, what's your, what's your predictions on that, Debbie? Yeah, again, I think this is a difficult one, isn't it? So I think somewhere in all of the messaging, the fact that not all plastic is bad has got lost, I think, in some audiences. So I both agree and disagree with the statement that you're making. I think what is most important about plastic is that it is used in the appropriate way in the appropriate volumes and that there is a collection mechanism for that that is appropriate. And that should address some of the issues that we've seen around sort of leakage to the natural environment, you know, plastic in the ocean, plastics in the in the rivers and so on. So from my perspective, I think there's a huge amount that we should be doing on focusing on getting those end-to-end systemic changes in place that allow us to handle plastic properly. And I think there is a long-term role for plastic. If you look at it from the carbon perspective, the plastic packaging that has been used more recently, like flexible packaging and so on, to replace glass and some of the more traditional what we would think of as recycled content and recyclable materials, of course, it has a much lower carbon footprint. So we have to, again, balance that up. And if if the product preservation qualities are better in a plastic pack than they are in something alternative, then we have to consider that actually the embedded carbon in the product should not be wasted. That product should not be wasted if an inefficient pack format is used. So I am supportive of things like Plastic Pack, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, a New Plastics Economy. They've shed a huge amount of light on, on these issues. And by coming together, particularly through the Global PAC Network and through the Ellen MacArthur Global Foundation, they're driving change in businesses at a level that regulation can't. So regulation, producer responsibility and so on is regional at best. And sometimes it's very local. If you look at the states, for example, 
And so there you lose the ability for businesses really to be able to drive change at a very macro scale. And I think this is what's exciting about the sort of initiatives that businesses have signed up to with the reduction commitments or recycled content or recyclability commitments that come with those things. It's making businesses think differently about the plastic that they do use, where it's coming from, what happens to it afterwards, how much they're using. And that can only be a good thing because we do have to decouple all our material consumption from, you know, we have to think about what's available as a resource to us. And at the moment, the scale of production and consumption far outweighs what the natural environment can provide for us. Absolutely, by a significant factor. And do you think with these very long global supply chains and product being made and packaged all over the world, do you think there's a realistic future for reuse, refilling packaging? I think there's always going to be a role for it. And certainly we've done quite a lot of work recently for clients who are being led by the changes in regulations. If you look at the French regulation, for example, around extended producer responsibility, it's really put reuse at sort of front and centre for for organisations who are either retailers or in the manufacturing space. So by doing that, I think it has sort of embedded a requirement for organisations to look at where there's a role for it in in the portfolio. And certainly there seem to be certain areas and certain products and and consumers where that is, it's an appropriate long-term solution. I think in terms of product movement, there's a huge amount of work going on around this anyway. So within sustainable production and consumption at Anthesis, we have a a sustainable supply chain team and they've been mapping for some of their clients product movement. And I think some of our clients have been quite surprised at where components are moved multiple times to multiple countries, either in the manufacturing or in the packing or co-packing processes before they're even distributed for use in the market that they're destined for. So I know that um, under the current circumstances, with shipping being the way that it is, particularly lots of big businesses are already looking at consolidation for their supply chain and more efficient ways of managing their supply chain to reduce that movement, which of course has a sustainability impact, also has a benefit for consumers maybe being able to access those products more quickly and more efficiently. So alongside that, certainly packaging is in consideration and there's lots of reuse opportunities that we don't talk about or we don't think about in that sort of tertiary in that logistics framework that as consumers we're not even aware of but pallets that are going backwards and forwards around the world that aren't single use that perhaps we just don't give businesses the credit for. No absolutely and I think there is a, a lot of that going on I've got a whole stack of those pallets in our yard. I like the phrase sustainable consumption in its current format it sounds a little bit like an oxymoron What is it, sustainable consumption, and how can we all become sustainable consumers? Different for different people all the way around the world. That word sustainable consumption means something different to everybody, I think. And I think the key thing that I would say to somebody who was considering it is, what does it mean or what can it mean to you? What can you do? What one single little change or or series of little changes can you make in your business or in your day-to-day life that would improve your footprint? So use less material or consume something that has a lower carbon or other impact. And so there isn't really a one size fits all. And I think actually part of that is the problem here. I was listening to or talking to somebody from uh, Unpack Recycling Label recently, Jane Beavis, and she was talking about, you know, how people in a consumer insights survey that they had undertaken recently were saying how difficult it is to do sustainability, to understand where to start and how daunting it feels because the problem is, as you hear it from people like Greta 
Greta Thunberg and from David Attenborough. It's just so huge. What can one individual do to deliver that change? And my advice to people is everything you do is better. Every small change you make, whether you're still flying but offsetting the carbon from that flight when you go on holiday, or whether you are moving from dairy milk to a nut alternative, for example. Every little thing you do helps, and that is making you more sustainable. But there are some great bloggers and social media insights out there that will give you lots of ideas about things that actually are not change, you know, they're not substantial changes to the quality of your life or the decisions that you make. It doesn't mean you can't have certain products or change your wardrobe regularly. It's just a way of being more mindful about the decisions that we make as consumers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, all the time, small changes, incremental changes, challenge yourself, but we don't want everybody to go back to sort of wearing um, hair shirts and living in a cave. I think the exciting thing about the innovation that we're seeing is that that isn't necessary. You can have a more sustainable lifestyle without compromise. And uh, I think it's the Ellen MacArthur Foundation figure puts the circular economy business model value globally at something like 1.8 trillion. And so there's a huge amount of opportunity for new business, new ways of us as consumers, but also as businesses innovating around this. You know, that is a huge opportunity for businesses to invest, I think, on the back of sustainability priorities. Massive, massive opportunity. Debbie, you haven't underestimated us about your depth of knowledge and expertise. How on earth did you get into sustainability? What happened in your life that you decided you were going to help us make the planet last a bit longer for humanity? Do you know what? I would love to tell you there was a eureka moment, but there wasn't such a thing in actual fact. And I was a bit ahead of my time, so I fell into sustainability. And it's one of the things that I am so grateful for. So I left school with slightly lower A-level grades than I had been predicted, which was not a good start. And I went through the clearing system. And the only university that offered me a place was offering me a place on a course called Resources and the Environment, which I didn't really understand what that was, but it looked quite interesting. So I took that course. It was hard. It was three years of really difficult modules, things I wasn't prepared for. I enjoyed geography at, at school, but there was very little geography. There was geology, there was nuclear physics, there was applied chemistry. I mean, there was all sorts of stuff in this. I even took a module on borehole extraction, believe it or not. And at the end of that, I came out going, God, there's a huge vocational opportunity here. Everybody must need somebody with all this diverse environmental skill set. And I wrote to all sorts of companies and they all wrote back saying, we love what you're talking about. We don't understand how you fit with us. And I was very fortunate that actually my first job was with a local authority. I started out in the waste in the planning department at a county council. So sort of responsible for awareness and sort of consumer engagement and um, some of the sites, the depots and sites that the council was running. But very early on, actually, they started a sustainable development division. And it was one of the first divisions um, in a local authority in the UK at the time. And it was quite bizarre. We all came together. There were people from walk to school week um, for you know education purposes. There was the economic regeneration forum. There was, there was us from the waste team. And there were people who monitored energy consumption in public buildings like libraries. And we all sat around this table on day one and said, who are you? What are you doing here? How do we fit together? Why does waste fit with you guys? And it was probably one of the most exciting experiences that I could have had that early on in my career because I suddenly realized the scale of what sustainability was. And each one of us had to come up with a key performance indicator for mapping our part of the sustainability journey. And it was that really that inspired me to then say, well, how can I make change? And what's new? What's emerging? And that's how I, I started to get this ambition for being at the cutting edge of things. And as I say, from that point onwards, from having left that incredible learning ground that was that local authority experience, I've always worked in either new startups or businesses that are really 
trying to push the boundaries on this stuff. And that's where I get my energy. I think it's just a super exciting part of the sector. Right at the edge of it, which is brilliant. And Anthesis are definitely at the sort of front edge, leading edge of this whole uh, sustainability change agenda at the moment. And for you, what does success look like? You know, massive challenge out there. But how do you measure it personally, how success looks? And what's your biggest hurdle for getting there? Personally, I think the reason that I am enjoying working for Anthesis is because that vision that I described to you of being able to look the next generation in the eye and tell them we did everything we could in the decisive decade, that's very much aligned with my personal ambition and my personal motivation for being in this space. I may have landed in sustainability by mistake, but during the course of that time, I've become a, a convert. And so for me, that is success, that we get to a point in 2030, 2050, 2070 and beyond, where I feel like we've kind of redressed that balance, where we have a fair society, where we have a much lower footprint as a society in the ways in which we consume and survive on the planet. So I am realistic in that there are huge challenges to that. And what I perceive as a a fair and equitable society is not necessarily what somebody else will. And it's, you know, it's not what some people in other parts of the, the world will aspire to. So I understand that there is an enormous challenge around achieving this vision. You've already flagged, I'm an optimist. I mean, I like to think that the solutions will come. And, you know, this is what we're sort of talking about, you know, $1.8 trillion of investment opportunity or growth opportunity, that's going to inspire new business models or, or things that we can do differently. So I think that that and, you know, the waste technologies and, and just different digital solutions, they're going to drive a different way of us consuming anyway. What I think is still a challenge that I worry that we haven't really got a solution for is, is consumer behavior change. We need to get more people to feel the way I do about sustainability, to feel that it's a core part of the responsibilities of being a global citizen is to consume responsibly. And I think that that's still quite a big challenge to get people to understand what they can do and then to behave in that way is still quite a challenge. I'm encouraged because I think it often comes out in research that the millennials and the Generation Z are are much more in tune with this. We can see that when you look at the following that people like Greta Thunberg have. There's a huge change, I think, with that demographic, but I still think that there's a long way for us to go on that. It's funny, isn't it? Because it's sort of, um, I did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, and my ask was talk about the environment and sustainability as much as we have been talking about coronavirus, because it's a huge threat, but we're not talking about it. I mean, we talk about it a bit. I mean, you and I talk about it all day long, but it's not been talked about. You know, we'll talk about forecourts not having petrol, but we won't talk about it. And there's something about it. It's this elephant in the room that we're not going to talk about. So getting people to talk more is good. But I do think things have changed, Bruce. So I said the Blue Planet effect. I mean, that was a big turning point when I went from being the person no one understood to being the person everybody wanted to bring a problem to. But I think if I think about adverts on television, for example, you know, when I was a student starting that course, it would have been unheard of to have imagined you could have had a a green energy supplier advertising in an advert break on television or people like retailers would be telling us on an advert break that they have responsible packaging and, you know, what the percentage recyclability is and what you do with it at end of life, it would be impossible to have imagined the sort of Coke branding that we've seen, that whole, you know, if, if you don't want to recycle our product, you're not the kind of consumer we want kind of attitude would have been unheard of when I was studying back then. So I do think that we've made an enormous change and that that is partly down to some really strong individual voices that are key to having brought this to people's attention, whether that's Greta or whether it's Prince Charles, who's in the news this week talking about it. 
you know, there are some real strong leaders who've emerged into this space. There are a lot of social media and particularly younger social media influencers, actually, who are now following the journey to COP, for example, and, and are reporting in terminology and language that resonates with the next generation. So I feel, again, this is my optimism coming through. I feel that there has been a change in the last 20, 25 years or so. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. What's coming up that you're most excited about? Oh, well, this is obvious. I'm going to say COP. So COP26 is is obviously the next big thing on the sort of horizon, I think. I'm more interested actually in what's going on on the fringes than the main event itself. I have optimism about the main event, but um, I've seen some of the agendas and the panel listings for some of the fringe events that are being organised by stakeholder groups and networks that you and I as professionals are privileged enough to have access to. And I think there's some fabulous conversations that are being had around the sort of periphery in, in Glasgow in the next few weeks. That brings me a huge amount of sort of encouragement, I think. The other thing that I'm excited about is that with that, is that increasing awareness in the media. So just to follow on from my last point, you know, I don't think in the in past COP events, there has been as much media or social media attention and interest on what's going on both in the main plenary sessions, but also in those fringe events. And that gets that message out to so many more people. It makes it accessible. It takes it away from being political leaders or global world leaders, and it takes it into the day-to-day lives of every individual, every consumer, every household or every worker. And for me, I think that's probably the most exciting thing. We need more of that sort of open media reporting, more of that awareness and information to filter down to address some of those things I was talking about in terms of overcoming barriers on on behaviour change and and inertia through lack of understanding of what, what action you can take. Yeah, absolutely. And I think on that communication side of things, I mean, I my personal view is if the claims are a bit dubious or the communications are a bit wonky, I don't really mind at the moment because as long as people keep talking about it, and sometimes, you know, as environmentalists need to get off our high horses a bit and just let people uh, find their feet a little bit and get talking about it. But I might be in a minority of one with that view. So some help for listeners. What's the eco product or gadget or service that you would never be without? Well, you're going to love this one, Bruce. I recently refurbished my kitchen. My kitchen was in excess of 30 years old and was really on its last legs. But I did recycle bits of it. Bits of it like the old taps went back in again, for example. And the life-changing thing I did, and I don't know why I waited this long, was to put an integrated recycling system under sink cupboard. Now, that sounds really sophisticated, doesn't it? It's three bins in a cupboard. But before that, I had a, a green box at the end of the units that used to trip over. I had a bathroom bin, actually, for my food waste. And yeah, just having it all in one place was was like a eureka moment. God, why did I wait so long for this? But actually, the big change was that I took the residual bin and I put it in the utility room because it didn't fit in the new kitchen design. And, you know, we're a sustainable household, myself, my husband, both very concerned about the environment. What I've discovered is that by moving that bin and putting a door between the kitchen and the bin, I've actually managed to significantly reduce the waste. And it was pretty low to start with, to be honest, but the waste going into it. And because of that convenience of having the three recycling bins under the sink, I've managed to get my husband to recycle things that he previously claimed he didn't even know were recyclable. So I share that because you asked me, you know, what one thing can a listener do? I mean, it is as simple as something like that. And it did make a difference. Hide the bin, move the bin. I love that. I think you need to work in uh, bin recycling company with your integrated recycling system. I like it. I'll send you a picture. It sounds a lot more sophisticated than it looks. (laughs) Excellent. And what podcast are you listening to at the moment? This is a good opportunity to plug your own. uh... Can I? Oh, yes. Yes, definitely. It's got a great title as well. 
Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to do a plug for Wise Women in Waste. It is a fabulous podcast. Not fabulous, necessarily. Excellent, excellent host. Thank you. Not excellent because of its host, necessarily, but because it shines a light on a lot of women who have done some incredible things, who've taken incredible innovation and leadership steps over the last 20 or 30 years of their careers. And it just talks very openly, like we are now, I think, about things that motivated them, challenges and opportunities that they've come across in their careers. And uh, the reason we started it was quite interesting. I, I co-host it with a colleague, Claudia Amos, who's one of our technical directors in the circularity and, and waste team. And we started it about a month after the pandemic lockdown in, in March or April last year, because we felt a massive void as a result of that loss of networking opportunity. We suddenly felt quite detached from individuals that we just caught up with regularly over a coffee or bumped into at conferences and networks. But we also identified that as the intensity of home working grew and grew and grew, we got less time for conversations with people, less time to read the journals that we were used to, to pick up on, on tidbits and knowledge. And so we started this thing partly to profile the women in our networks and, and the incredible things that they'd done, but also really to try and plug in the next generation of leadership so that they weren't missing out on some of those opportunities to learn and hear firsthand about what was going on in the sector. And if you haven't heard them all, I recommend them. There isn't one favourite, but there are some incredible guests ranging from elected members in local authorities to people who run new tech innovation, who are developing new ways of, of handling waste products, to people who are in sort of big global brands, manufacturers and retailers that we all consume daily. So there's some really, really interesting and quite open and insightful conversations. It is. It's very good. I recommend it. I was uh, started listening to it last night. Really good listen, so I can recommend that. So apart from Anthesis, what's the most exciting green business out there today, in your opinion? Yeah, do you know, this is a real challenge. I was afraid you might ask me this question. It's a tough one because I think that humankind is pretty innovative as a species. And over the last decade or so, I think we've started to wake up to the opportunity that both digital and sustainability when combined can bring. And you mentioned deposit return schemes earlier on. And I know that there are some really interesting programs, for example, cropping up globally. I mean, that's really gaining traction in terms of particularly beverage containers for a more sustainable way of consuming them. But I've also seen some super interesting sort of digital solutions for managing the deposit return materials, which again, when I was a child, you took your bottle back to the newsagent or wherever you bought it from. If you were super quick, you could possibly nick it back again and get the 5p back, you know, run back into the shop when they put it in the crate at the back and get the 5p a second time. These solutions now are far more technical and far more sophisticated than that. And certainly they don't allow for that sort of fraud. But I mean, that's just one example of some of the really, really interesting sort of combinations where you've got digital technology and sustainability coming together. I mean, in, in your world, Bruce, I'm sure we could talk about things like optical sort equipment in sorting facilities to make sure that we're pulling out all of the plastics with the lowest contamination, for example, and putting them in the right polymer brackets so that they can be bailed and recycled again. You know, there's some absolutely incredible stuff going on. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of in terms of fan thesis is the fact that we're putting our money where our mouth is in terms of our ventures business. So we're doing a joint venture at the moment called Infinite Sustainable Packaging, which I've been very privileged to play a key role in, which has brought us together with a design agency called 1HQ. And collectively, we're using their understanding of how to design and develop efficient and effective consumer products and packaging with our capability to make that sustainable. And it's that sort of unusual pairing, bringing together of different unusual suspects 
to create something that's new and innovative, but also still beautiful and much better for the environment. I think these sorts of things are really, really exciting melting pots of opportunity. Fantastic. And finally, if you could put one thing into the First Mile Planet Saver Hall of Fame, what or who would it be? Who? I hadn't thought of a who. I've got a what. It's my season ticket. For 21 years, I commuted into London with an All Zones travel card, a gold card. I was privileged enough to have a gold card. And I consider myself a Londoner. And when the pandemic started, I was actually heartbroken to have to give it back because it felt like I was kind of giving up a part of myself and admitting that I was just going to do my life from my front room. Well, you say, why would you put that into your Hall of Fame? You know, what's that got to do with sustainability? Well, since I've started returning to the office, since the sort of lockdown easing has, has happened, I've been really saddened by the number of people who haven't ventured back onto public transport. And in the current circumstances, I totally understand it. I get it. But sustainable transport for me is mass transit or cycling or your own feet. And the thing that really concerns me is the massive increase that I've noticed in transport on the roads. So far more people seem to have bought mopeds and motorbikes since lockdown. There are far fewer people on buses, but there are far more individuals, just one person in a car or people I see driving to do a school drop off, which is just maybe two minutes down the road rather than take the children on a bus or walk them. And so the thing that I want people to remember in your Hall of Fame is that sustainable transport is often faster, cheaper, more efficient, but it's also much better in terms of our sustainability footprint. Excellent. Well, let's hopefully it'll be some public transport that is still being used and not mothballed in the Hall of Fame. That's brilliant. Debbie, it's been absolutely amazing. I mean, 40 minutes, we just don't have time to even scratch the surface, but we think the listeners have got an amazing overview of your incredible work. And uh, you definitely haven't under-delivered on your superstar status as a sustainability guru. Before we wrap up, Debbie, can you let listeners know where they can find you? Yes. So I'm on LinkedIn. Again, my name, Debbie Hitchin. You can find me on the Anthesis website. So that's anthesisgroup.com. And if you want a phone number or something more personal, I'm sure you can get in touch with Bruce. Thank you so much for coming on Zero Five O. I'm Bruce Bratley, and you've been listening to Zero Five O, where we meet remarkable people creating solutions for a zero carbon world. Keep listening to all episodes on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zero Five O.